This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Who needs food in Michigan? Who's hungry and why? These are questions I am often asked by our legislature. This isn't a snotty judgment in those queries. Those are more often than not honest, probing questions in search of understanding. Why are people struggling with more month than money? Why are they not able to feed their kids? Why is the first question, who is the second? In 2014, Feeding America completed a multi-million dollar study for every state and for the United States. Who is hungry and why in each state and then collectively as a country? We discovered then that 47% of the households who come to food banks had at least one person in their household who was employed full time. 24% of the people that we served were children under the age of 18. 19% were senior citizens and 6% were homeless. Now, in 2022, we've learned that interventions from the government, like the child income tax credit, have the dramatic effect on families who are struggling at the poverty level or below. The CITC lifted many families out of poverty recently in much the same way the Social Security did for seniors generations ago. Many do not grasp this situation. They are quick to judge and slow to listen. And I want you today to slow your roll. Here is the first thing you need to hear. Neither Jerry nor I romance this work. We do not embellish. We do not exaggerate the situation for the people who are food insecure and struggling with poverty. Therefore, we have people on the left who are aggravated with us and those on the right who think we are just do-gooders. Both sides misunderstand us and our work. That isn't our objective. Our objective is to change the conversation about food insecurity and create a movement that generates enough political will to solve the problem. We must trade on trust, be grounded in facts, and rooted in data. We take a rational approach to this work and we deal in facts. Today, you will hear facts. We will examine with an expert the impact of one intervention, the CITC, and how households led by parents who struggle use this money from their government. Regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on or identify with, you might be surprised by the conversation that will happen today on Food First Michigan. Jerry Brisson joins me with Dr. Diane Whitmore-Schonsenbach from Northwestern University by way of Princeton, next on this edition of Food First Michigan. Thanks for joining us. As promised, Jerry Brisson is here. Jerry, always great to see you on Zoom. But My I pleasure, know what you're doctor. Gonna, 
I know what you're going to say. Don't talk about me. Let's go straight to our guest, Dr. Diane Whitmore Schonsenbach, who is a leading economic expert on uh, anti-poverty measures. She is the director of the Institute for Policy Research and a professor of education in social policy at Northwestern University. And she's our friend and our colleague. And Diane, welcome to Food First Michigan. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, super excited to have you. So, so let me let me throw this to Jerry because I know he is keenly, as we all are, interested in how you got to this place. So, Jerry, go ahead. Well, first of all, it's so nice to have a researcher on the show who's done so much work in understanding the impact that our policies have on children in poverty. I mean, it's such important work. And, you know, when they talk about lobbying, they talk about cleaning out the swamp and all that stuff. But the fact is, how else do you educate the people who are making important decisions if you don't spend time doing research and letting them know what that research is saying about what's making a difference? And we talk about impact on the show a lot because we can't just be romantic about this. We need to know what's happening, what's working, how much it's working. And when I got a chance to read your bio and then read some of the articles you've authored or co-authored, my brain just started to expand, right? <laughs> now, truthfully, everybody knows there's only so much that that can happen. But, uh, but we're so excited to, to find out how did you get here? You know, what, what did you do that made you go, this is the thing I really want to know about? Oh, fantastic. Thank you for asking that. Um, you know, so I grew up in Missouri and, you know, just my family's values were always you know, about helping people. My grandmother and my mom were both public school teachers, et cetera. And I um, was always really good at math. And I never really saw how uh, a career with math could be, you know, could align with helping people. And then I went to college and I took Economics 101 with a guy named Chick Case, who's famous for the Case-Shiller Index. Um, uh, he, he died a few years ago and just like the you know, scales fell from my eyes. I was like, you can use math to help people in economics. And I fell in love in that Econ 101 class and just everything changed for me. Uh, I went on, I got um, the experience to work at the White House, the Council of Economic Advisors between undergraduate and graduate school. And that whole White House office is dedicated to producing the best, highest quality evidence to try to improve public policies. And so then I got to go on um, to, to get my PhD in economics at Princeton, working with a guy named Alan Kruger, um, who also, uh, you know, is really motivated with bringing the best evidence to try to improve improve policies. And just everything kind of fell into place for me. Uh, I started studying food stamps as part of my dissertation research brought to it because economists are really interested in how people spend them because it's not cash, it's this other thing. And, you know, so that sort of started my interest in in food stamps in particular, now called SNAP. And then, you know, the rest just, you know, the deeper you get in, the more complicated you see the problems are, the more opportunities that you see for, you know, bringing high quality evidence to the debate can really make a difference. 
You know, and I've been lucky. Uh, Congress has asked me to testify on on this topic uh, five times. And uh, I have. Yeah, I know. Uh, Yeah. I really enjoy, you know, educating uh, policymakers about these important topics and just, you know, how complex um, the lives are. You know, there's there's a lot of, you know, tough economic um, challenges thrown at families, um, you know, both at the micro level and the macro level, you know, trade and um, machines have really changed uh, work opportunities for a lot of families. Uh, and, you know, some things are just really out of people's hands. Sometimes you get, you know, unlucky and you need to turn mm-hmm. to your neighbors to help, you know, right. to, to get some help sort of a real inflection point for me was when now my friend Kate Mayer uh, called me one day and said, Hey, let's, let's go have coffee. I think we could do some pretty cool stuff if we work together. And so that led to um, me just learning a lot from her and from the rest of the people at the greater Chicago food depository uh, on really when the, you know, how the rubber meets the road. And I have really, uh, been fortunate to be able to, you know, contribute in sort of the nerdy ways that an economist can contribute as well. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, we love the Greater Chicago Food Depository. They're a big food bank. They do a tremendous amount of work. They've been an innovator for many years, have helped us understand things about nutrition and and managing the partner network and um, certainly has has done some incredible fundraising and awareness building in, in Chicago and beyond. And we can't say enough good things about Kate and her team they're they're wonderful people and and to you know we're we're Thanks for being part of our network, Diane. It's it's awesome and we you know we love the people we get to spend time with. It it makes it makes us all I mean, just so appreciate all the different dynamics of this work. And every food bank has a little different approach that adds to this cumulative knowledge about what is it really going to take to have a food secure community. And that's where we want to be, right? We don't want anybody suffering from the toxic stress of food insecurity, as our good doctor likes to say. And and so I'll just repeat it without taking credit this time. But next time I'll take credit. Well, that's that that happens quite a bit on this show, but that's okay. <laughs> so, Diane, I, I want to circle back a little bit because your grandma and your uh, mom were both uh, public school teachers. And so out of that is born a life of and examples of service. Right. So then you, you kind of fast forward to getting your Ph.D. at Princeton, falling in love with uh, economics and and really understanding how those policies impact families who are at below the poverty level. Um, So one of the things I think is really unique is that, you know, Missouri, where you're from, is is nicknamed the show me state. And here you are in an evidence based, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, uh, life that is it's contributing to policies like you know, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter. Here are the facts, the evidence-based. You you are the definition of a person from Show Me State. You got it. That's right. You know, you know, 
it's sort of a, a no BS place, you know, <laughs> numbers and, you know, show them to me. Right. Wasn't it Moynihan who said, you know, uh, we all have our own opinions, but we all have to agree on the same set of facts. And yeah. I work hard at you know, just understanding what's what's going on. Well, that's I think it's it's critical. One of the things that Jerry says, and I will give him credit for this, is that um, one of the reasons we believe and a premise for this show, Food First Michigan, is we believe that the problem of food insecurity can be solved. We think we can solve hunger by creating food security, and we 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 believe that because you don't. Jerry says from the beginning. You can't solve a, you'll never solve a problem that you don't believe can be solved. And, and so what happens is you change the conversation about food insecurity. You find that there are people that gravitate to you and you gravitate to, like yourself, that has a perspective about this work that has really not been heard before and is is new and fresh. And, and I'm happy that you're investing your one handful of life. And some of that has been in front of Congress five times to share with them the evidence-based material. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. We can solve this. Remember, just a couple of months ago, we landed a helicopter on mars if we can do that like don't you think we can end food insecurity in the united states of america Come why on. not yeah, absolutely yeah. Uh, one of the perspectives that we keep wanting to bring to the table is to solve it you have to have the information that supports what's working right and so again to connect to this evidence-based methodology we don't think you'll get public support we don't think you'll get community support. We don't think you'll get enough people to really follow along and be part of this if you can't show that it makes a difference. Not just that it makes a difference, but what did it cost to make the difference? What other choices did you have in your tool bag of things that you could offer that, that could also make a difference? Because it's got to be scalable. It's got to be sustainable. It's got to have a cost benefit that makes sense to people. And then you can bring along all of the people that it will take to solve the problem. So we don't want to make it too simple sounding, right? The energy behind it and the emotion behind it is critical. But underneath that, there's got to be really clear understanding about impact and how this makes a difference in people's lives. And, and I'm, I mean, again, we're going to be talking in a minute here about your work and how it's shown some of that. But I just want to reinforce it's so important. That's a great segue, Jerry. So let's take a quick break, let Mark pay some bills, and we'll be back in just a moment. You come back and be with us. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with our guest, Dr. Diane Whitmore-Shonsenbach, who is our, uh, our friend and colleague, researcher extraordinaire. And Diane, you've done some work about some of the interventions, I would say, for families who are at, below, right around the poverty level. And one of the things we want to eventually talk about here is, is uh, the child 
uh, tax credit bill that's 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 just ending in January here of 2022. So um, so kind of talk to us about how you've invested yourself a bit in that in this area of interventions for families. Yeah, so one of my, the studies that I'm most proud of uh, came out a couple of years ago and was looked at the original introduction of the food stamp program, which was part of the war on poverty in the 1960s. It, mm -hmm. Food stamps at the time was introduced uh, on a county-by-county county basis over a really long period of time. It took them 13 years to go from the pilot programs to everybody having access to it. And what that does, it means that within a state, people in one county have access to it earlier than people in other counties. And that then gives us researchers real fruitful opportunity to look to see, well, what's the impact of this? And so we, we were able to ask a series of questions. What happened to how people spend their money? What happens to how people, uh, how much people work? But then we start really getting into the impacts on children. So we first discovered that Kids who were in utero when food stamps became available in their county were born with higher birth weights and were less likely to be born at low birth weight. So that, you know, coming along alongside the families and making sure that mom had enough to eat when she was expecting, you know, this was all before WIC was, a, you know, right. was available, makes a difference. And then we know, you certainly know, that that health at birth is a marker for things to come. And so then uh, we had the opportunity to then follow these cohorts up when they are older and see, do they grow up to be healthier? Like we would expect them to be because they were born with better birth weight, but then also, you know, they continue to have more resources. Uh, and indeed we find that when they grow up, they're uh, healthier less likely to suffer from um, what's called metabolic syndrome, which is uh, obesity and heart disease, et cetera. And then we also, be an economist, right, we um, dug into their economic outcomes. And what we learned was people who had more resources for food in younger um, ages of life were more likely to graduate from high school. And then they, you know, were more likely to be employed as adults. And um, they themselves were less likely to need to be on the safety net when they were adults because mm -hmm. of these investments that we made in them as children. And you can imagine, you know, we were talking before about being from Missouri and there's it's sort of a, you know, tell me the facts and like with a, a dose of common sense, you know, going around, you know, at like family reunions and saying, oh, yeah, I study. Does it make a difference that kids have enough to eat? They're like, people pay you for that, right? But what's, um, like, of course it makes a difference if kids have enough to eat. But, um, you know, we were really able to uh, very convincingly measure this. Uh, that then uh, contributed to uh, just a lot of new research being done in economics to better understand early life events and, you know, what happens to kids um, as they grow up. You know, these are very precious time. Um, I don't know if you saw, there was just a brand new study uh, this week about giving uh, low-income families an extra $300 a month and what, what it does to babies' brain development. And they were able to measure that the babies at 11 months old have more brain functioning 
my just the the opportunity to do a lifetime of good by making sure that we protect these youngest and most vulnerable children is it's just it's an enormous opportunity but so then you know so learning this and then uh, you know talking to more policymakers etc made me i think better understand um also just normal ups and downs right so what happens during a recession you know everybody has mm-hmm. to tighten their belts but if that happens you know when you're at one of these you know especially precious ages for brain development you know how much damage does that do you know how much damage does sure. it do when we um, you know cut back on school spending because we're in a recession etc and so all of that research sort of points to it's to our best advantage to protect children in times of economic downturn. So we learned a lot from the Great Recession and sort of policies to to improve things. Wow. Of course, we never thought we'd see what we saw during this COVID recession, which was deeper, faster, uh, and then you know came with all of these other things like the school closures, which meant that our normal lines of protection for the most vulnerable children were also shut down. It just makes and me so, think of the the power of food. It just sure. it just it's just astonishing to me. Jerry, it's got to make you feel good about how you've invested your handful of life. Well, that's not what my notes are right here. I've been writing furiously. I I will say this. I so one of the things that I would like to see us say differently about the people who need help is that it that people aren't needy they're worth investing in, right? It's, it's, a, it's a different way to talk about people when you say, we give people food help not because they're needy, but because they're worth investing in. But in order to be able to make that claim, in order to say we need to change the way we talk about this so we talk about why it's worth investing in people, what you just said is something that I think isn't well understood, and that is entitlements don't lead to more entitlements generation after generation. What you just said was the research proves that if you help people at a critical point in their life when they're when kids are in utero or or young kids who are still being developing for sure, not that there isn't research beyond that, but but specifically for that population, that help reduces the likelihood that people will need entitlements in later generations. In other words, it's not this revolving door of people just always needing help, always needing help, always needing help, and it never ends. And what we see on the ground is people who come to use help use it for a period of time and then don't need it anymore, with the exception of people who have really, really difficult challenges in their life, whether that's substance abuse or mental illness or other things that are really difficult to solve, right? Most people want to solve the situations they're in, and they do. Now, then another crisis can happen, and you can see people coming in and out of the system. Poverty is dynamic. It's not static. But really the point that I, that I wanted to draw out of the many good points that you made is this giving people help now does not mean they're always going to want or need help. It doesn't work that way. And that's a really important thing to understand when you talk to policymakers who worry too much that, well, if we give them more money, they're just going to want you know that money forever. And 
of course we all want money forever right <laughs> so so let, let, let let's not let's not shy away from the idea that we need money forever but people want to solve their own problems by and large and so i i there's so many other things to be said for how snap has helped bring people out of poverty and the the economic impact that it's had how it's helped grocery stores survive how it's helped small grocery stores especially in impoverished or rural areas even be able to exist i saw something the other day one uh, one in $10 spent uh, at the grocery store during the pandemic was from uh, government programs, SNAP, EBT, and other programs. Um, and that was a nationwide stat that I just saw. You know, that's a huge support, not just to families, but to stores, right? And to all the people that work in those stores. And there's such a ripple effect. So I know I'm rambling on here, but... Uh, but I just want to say there's so much good that comes of this, and the research that supports knowing that is is critical. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Um, and I'll say that uh, the studies show that during the last recession, the Great Recession, the additional dollars that were pumped into SNAP had the biggest multiplier effect of any of the various programs that they studied because of exactly what you said. People spend that money, they spend it quickly at their local grocery stores, and that means that the grocery stores can you know, keep the bag boy employed and you know, there's just this multiplier effect and a very efficient and effective one. Hey guys, we're gonna have to take another break here. I, I, but let's pick it up on the other side. It's, it's great stuff, great research, great comments, and I love it all. But we're gonna be back with Dr. Diane Schonsenbach Jerry Brisson, myself, Dr. Phil Knight. We're back in just a moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for listening, everyone. We're back. Dr. Phil Knight here with Jerry Brisson and our guest, Dr. Diane Schonsenbach. It's great to have you here very much, Diane, and thanks for investing uh, your time with us. And particularly, you know, the research that you're doing on a lot of areas. Um, I want to. I want you guys to maybe talk a little bit about this this most recent intervention uh, in the child uh, income tax credit here, and um, and its effect and. And really what I'm looking at here is some, some research that's been done about how people who received this actually spent the money. Because I think we would all say there's a little bit of dis or misinformation out there that people are taking this money and they're not using it for the intended purpose. But I, it looks like the research, wait a minute, the facts show some, a little bit different picture than what we might have casted out in our mind. Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about this policy that got enacted. Uh, there's, uh, for a long time, been a child tax credit that um, higher income families get at tax time. But what this policy change did was a couple things. One is make it uh, so that all families got it, including the lowest income ones. Second was increase the benefit level uh, up to uh, $3,000 a year and then even higher for people with the youngest children, recognizing that it's just all the more important to protect the youngest children because of that brain development, like we were talking about in the last segment. Um, and then the third change was 
that it's uh, being was being paid out every month so that families didn't mm -hmm. have to wait till tax time to get it because you can't just buy your groceries once a year. You kind of got to buy those uh, even more than once a month, frankly. Right. But, you know, having this injection of new resources every month, uh, you know, we, the so the theory goes, you know, would help families, you know, make ends meet. You know, they wouldn't need to go into debt or they wouldn't have to you know, suffer periods of hardship at the end of the end of the month. Um, I will just give a shout out to uh, my friend out, up there in Michigan, Luke Schaefer, who runs their uh, the poverty um, center at the University of Michigan. He's been doing a lot yeah. of work on uh, also tracking how people are are spending this. Um, Luke's Luke's been a guest on this show. I bet he has. I, bet I, I he think has. he. Put, I think after that he put it on his resume too. <laughs> <laughs> So what, uh, you know, we, we've been able to track because this money started showing up in people's, uh, you know, people's bank accounts in, in July, and it only went to people with children. And so that, again, gives us good opportunities to, to do some comparisons of who got it to who didn't. And what we saw first uh, was that really quickly, the rate of people saying that they sometimes or often didn't have enough to eat in the last week dropped substantially for people. Uh, people with kids uh, who started receiving this this money. Uh, we've been very fortunate during the time of COVID that our Census Bureau responded quickly by uh, just collecting a bunch of new data uh, called the Census Pulse Survey. And we've been, a lot of us have been mining that for just trying to understand how families are been have been impacted during during this, this time of COVID. So some of those questions ask people Hey, did you receive the child tax credit? And if so, how'd you spend it? And what mm -hmm. the data are showing is, you know, sort of, again, it would be no surprise to my mom or my grandma that, mm -hmm. you know, if low-income families are, you know, facing some troubles and they get more resources, what do they do? Well, they spend it to make sure that their kids are doing all right. So they, uh, you know, use it to buy food or to make sure that their utility bill gets paid or you know if they're behind on their rent they you know use that to um you know to help with that so what the data are showing is that most of this money a lot of this money is going to you know basic necessities which you know i again would underscore mm -hmm. is exactly what you would think when families are in trouble and they have get some relief they use it to spend it on the things they need the most. Yeah, and of course, what we're concerned about right this second is that program's coming to an end. We're almost at the end of January. And what does that mean for the Charitable Food Distribution Network? I mean, we're, we're fairly certain that, that many of the families that have been affected by lots of different things, whether it's school closures or 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 um, employment or or health crises, right? All things that that affect how much help people need. Um, that when this program ends and they don't have those dollars, that they're going to be ending up at pantries because they don't have enough to make ends meet. Now, of course, to some degree, the safety net's supposed to expand and contract as need changes. It's supposed to expand and contract. So it's not illogical to say 
as we move to a new place in how we're able to manage the pandemic that you would expect some expansion and contraction. You just have to do it in the right way. So at the same time that this program is ending, there's three other government programs ending and we are at a five-year low in the amount of USDA food that we're actually getting at the food bank. A five-year low. We have to go all the way back to before trade mitigation, before mm -hmm. we are at a similar level of food coming in and of course those were fantastic economic times right so we're getting food and support right now as if these are fantastic economic times for the community when in fact they're not so so this is why this evidence-based work is so important when we say look you know here's what people were doing with the money they were they were paying their basic needs they're not going to get that anymore the economy is better than the deepest part of the pandemic but it's still not for a lot of families where it used to be yes there are a lot of jobs available but we know that that wages and other things are still catching up. Inflation is starting to have a huge impact on actual spendable dollars at the household level. These are facts. This isn't made up stuff. This isn't fake news, right? These are the facts. <laughs> this is the evidence in front of us. So our policies have to follow suit. They have to follow along with, then what do we need to do to make sure at the very least that our children are taken care of, right? And so this is so important as, as these policy limits start to hit right as the ends are coming that we can't say well good thing we had that because we don't need it anymore wait a minute wait a minute what is the evidence and let's start with that and then what's the benefit of providing that support and when you look at it it's so compelling kids who are well nourished do better period and not only do the kids do better but their households do better the parents do better and the community does better. And I know, you know, we don't have time to go into all of the research that supports the value of taking care of people in the right ways, but it is, it is so compelling that we need to be there at times like this. I, I thought Jerry was going to say this, so I'm going to say it for him, that, you know, the principle that you laid out there is that when you gave, when we, when, when this money was invested in, in people, they used it for the intended purpose, 91%, one study says that was used for basic needs. One of the things that we say on the show is, you know what happens when you give parents food? They feed their kids. The reason parents don't feed their kids is they don't have the food. Hello. <laughs> so it's kind of the same principle here that you two are working off of. And I just want to, as we close this segment here, I, and, I, and your time with us, I want to give you the last word to, to kind of tie a bow on this, if you can. I mean, I just, I, I agree. I think that, you know, you hear people concerned that, you know, this money is going to be wasted. And there will be, you know, one or two, you know, stories Right. But what we what I want to do is try to contradict or, you know, counteract those individual stories with the overwhelming data. And that overwhelming mm -hmm. data is that, yeah, maybe there's one or two who, you know, are suffering from you know real other problems. And they're, you know, taking the money and doing things that we don't want. But, you know, 90 out of, you know, 95 or whatever are. You know, they love their kids. They're trying to do the best. Um, they've just fallen on hard times. And, you know, giving them 
you know, a little bit of help when they've fallen on the hard times, you know, means that, you know, we can preserve, you know, some stability, keep making those investments in kids, having them grow and, and be healthy. And uh, it's, it's awesome. It's great. Look, I'm going to have to invite you back. I don't know if you'll come or not, but I, I'd, we'd love to have you back with us to, to kind of, you know, peel the layers off these onions a little bit more if you're willing. You bet. Anytime. Excellent. Excellent. Dr. Diane Schatzenbach, she is our uh, colleague, a researcher at uh, Northwestern University, the director of the Institute for Policy Research and a professor of education and social policy at our the esteemed university at Northwestern and outside of Chicago. So thank you so much, Diane, for being with us. Um, and we're excited to have you back as soon as possible. Jerry and I will be back to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan in just a moment. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry, what's your quick thought on today's show? You know what? Always glad to have really smart people working with us to, to help us understand what we need to do, how much we need to do, how often we need to do it for the people that depend on us. It was fantastic. I agree with you. It's encouraging to have smart people rallying to the cause. Time for a little food for thought. I think one of the things that stumbles, that we stumble over in creating these interventions is we worry about the few who may misuse the intervention and we don't think enough about the many who benefit from our investment. When I was in Africa, the nationals would say, stop worrying about the lion on the land and think about the hole in your boat. So today, I think we should invest in the many and stop worrying about the few. And we do that by keeping food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.